Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we're going to look at Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is an interesting psalm in so very many ways. The themes are themes that we have seen before, but a clue to this psalm is the fact that it is written to the choir director and identified as a psalm of David. The fact that it is for the choir director does mean that it's going to be recited publicly. It is a psalm that can be broken down into three parts, and the third part of the psalm demonstrates that it is intended by David to be a public psalm and a public confession of faith. The center part, the middle part, the middle theme of this psalm, David speaks almost in a hyperbolic way about how difficult his life has been and the circumstances that he has been through. And yet we're not told what inspired it, what particular event, what particular thing he was going through at this minute that inspired him to write these words. The first part of the psalm is David's individual confession that he trusts in God despite his circumstances. So when you put all those three elements together, what it appears to be is a psalm that David expected to be recited in the temple because, after all, the choir director was the recipient of this psalm. And David seemed to be saying, Trust in God regardless of what your circumstances happen to be at any given time. It's not that I'm just the king and I can't relate to your circumstances. Let me tell you what I've been through. It's kind of a been there, done that middle section of it. So the beginning of the psalm is David's declaration of his confidence in God to get him through stuff. Then he recites terrible things that he's been through. And then he concludes with, therefore, all of us collectively trust in God regardless of what your circumstances are. So I'd like to start reading, actually, from verse 9 so that we can get some sense of what I referred to earlier as practically hyperbolic language as David describes what he has been through. Along the way, as we're reading this psalm, we're going to hear echoes of the past, and we're going to see messianic promises of the future. And before we get done tonight, we're going to see a really interesting connection between this psalm and Jesus himself. Starting in verse 9, be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am in distress 
My eye is wasted away from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow. In other words, I got no gas left in the tank. I'm completely spent because of the amount of sorrow that I've had to deal with. Now, again, he doesn't tell us what the particular events are that caused this sorrow. So we don't know what the inspiration was or what David is pointing at in particular to say this event brought about my continuous sorrow. But he's describing the state that he has lived in, that his eye is wasted away from his grieving and his soul and his body have been affected by it, which is just a general truth. If you're sick, if you're grieving, it can affect your health. It can affect your body. It can affect your well-being. So that seems to be what he's describing here. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also, and my life is completely worn out because of this sorrow and my years are full of sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity, which is an interesting confession on David's part, especially for a very public psalm that he is sending to the choir director to be recited, to be sung in the temple, to be memorized by the people. He says that part of his sighing and his sorrow and his wasting away is as a result of his own knowledge of his own iniquity. So it's more than just the circumstances of my life have led me to this point of dismay and despair, but also when I think about who I am, what I've done, and I think about who God is and how holy God is, that drives me to a sense of despair as well because I don't know how I'm going to be able to stand before that righteous God given who I am and what I've done. So whether it's circumstance or whether it's theological and philosophical thought, David is describing the fact that he too knows what it's like to suffer this kind of emotional anguish and that there's nothing anybody else can say, yeah, but David, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what I've been through. Mm. David here is saying, I've been there. My life is spent with sorrow. And my years spent with sighing, my strength has failed because of my iniquity, and my body is wasting away. That phrase indicates that maybe this was one of David's later psalms, written when he was an older man, and when he could look at himself and say, my body is used up. One of the general inequalities of life and I'm sure that the, um, <clears throat> shall I say, the older folks in the room will agree with me that even as our bodies wear out, our brain keeps thinking we're 21. I mean, our brain keeps thinking we're completely capable and that we can get up and go. And I think that's what he's describing here is that his body has wasted away and he's conscious of it. He's aware of the fact that as he's aging, he's more incapable of doing the things he used to do. And yet, he's conscious of his own life, his own history, the things he's gone through, his own sin against God. And then in verse 11, on top of that, he has also had enemies in his life. He's had whole armies coming after him, and his own sons have undermined him. 
And so he says, because of my adversaries, I've become a reproach. In other words, I know what it is to be hated. I know what it is to be disliked, to not be accepted. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, especially to those who live right around me, the people who know me best. Even to them, I have become a reproach during this lifetime. See, David is describing the hardships that he has dealt with in his life as a way of saying, I know I've been there. I know life is hard. Don't just think because I'm the king and I live in the king's house that it's been easy street for me the whole time. I have also suffered. I have become an object of dread even to my acquaintances. So a moment ago he mentioned his friends and neighbors and now he's saying even people who were just acquainted with me reached the point where they were afraid of me because of the things that I was undergoing, the way that I have been chased out of my own kingdom, the way that my enemies have attacked me. I know what it is to suffer. And those who see me on the street flee from me. Okay, now that's one of the indications that I think David is writing here in this sort of universal sense. Because really, honestly, how often was David just out walking the streets? I mean, he's the king. And yet he's saying, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're on the streets, whether you're living in a big house, life is difficult. Life is hard. And I've been there. I'm speaking from the first person. I know what it is to go through this kind of hardship. Verse 12, I am forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. When was David ever out of the collective mind of Israel when he was king? And yet he can say that when he was on the run, when he had to leave Jerusalem, he assumes people just didn't give him any more thought and assumed that his kingship was over. I'm forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. I am a broken vessel. For I have heard the slander of many people, and terror is on every side. And while they took counsel together against me, they schemed to kill me. They schemed to take away my life. So all of that collectively is David's description of the things that he has actually lived with so that he can speak from a position of knowledge and say, whoever you are, whatever you're going through, it's just part of what it is to be human. Even I, the king, have suffered to this degree. But even as I have been through this level of suffering, verse 14, but as for me, I trust in Yahweh. So now we understand the theme of the psalm, which again is, yeah, life is difficult. Can I get a witness? And we get older and our bodies wear out. We find enemies in this world. We certainly have our detractors. And yet our confidence is not in our flesh. Our confidence is in God and God alone. That then takes us to the beginning of the psalm. So we're going to start now in verse 1 so that we understand the perspective that David is writing from. He starts by saying, In thee, O Yahweh, in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Now we know why he could say that. 
despite his difficult circumstances, despite the hardships of life, despite his enemies, despite his own body letting him down, despite the fact that his sorrow and his crying seems endless, he could still say, but I've taken refuge in God, which is the only place you can take any real refuge in hardship. As we've seen repeatedly, there's no place else to go. When your friends let you down, when your neighbors are mocking you, when your enemies are out to get you, when your own body is rebelling against you, where else are you going to go? God is cornering you so that you have no other refuge but him. In thee, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In other words, people know publicly that I trust in you. But then if I am killed by my enemies, but then if I am taken off my throne, but then if I am ultimately defeated, that's a black mark against your reputation because I have been very public about the fact that I trust you. And then if you let me down, it's going to be a public shame. So don't let me be ashamed. Support me. Take care of me. Defend me. And that's the next thing he's going to say in verse 2. In thy righteousness, deliver me. Because that is the only real deliverance. The righteousness of God is the only deliverance from our sinful estate. Remember that David is crying about his own sinfulness, his own trespasses against God. And so the only deliverance can be the righteousness of God imputed to David. So in your righteousness, deliver me. And incline your ear to hear me. And rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. First, he says, be this to me. And in the very next verse, he says, because you are my rock and my fortress, which is exactly what stronghold means. Throughout the Bible, we see this language of rock. God is a rock. Christ is a rock. On the solid rock I stand. Jesus said, build your house on a rock and not on sand. The whole point is, if you're living in the Middle East, if you're living in a desert area, it's difficult to find something rigorous enough that you can stand on, that you can build on it, and that it won't change, that it won't shift. But if you can find something rocky, then that's rigorous. You can stand on it. It won't be moved. The storms can come. The wind can come, just like Jesus said. And it won't be moved because it's built on a rock. That's language that Jesus used that is Old Testament and Davidic language. And David says that God is the rock that he's going to stand on because everything else in this world is passing and unstable and you can't trust it. But God is a rock who you can lean on, who you can stand on, who you can say confidently does not change. So be a rock of my strength and be the fortress around me. Protect me. Be a stronghold to save me. And then verse 3, because you are my rock and my fortress. For your own name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. Why does God do anything? I like the theology of David here. It's so consistent with everything else we see in the Bible. What is the cause? What is the reason? What is the motivation that makes God do anything? He's doing it for his own namesake. Mm -hmm. He is on his throne doing whatever 
He wants to do whatever seems good to him. How often have you heard me say everything God does is ultimately for his glory and our good? God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And so God does everything for his own reputation's sake, his own name's sake. God's cause is wholly and completely within God. You can't say that there is any outside cause that motivated God to do anything ever. The motivation, the reason, the cause, the purpose of God is always found in God. It's always wrapped up in the character of God and the revelation of God. That's the reason he made the creation, was to reveal himself to the creation. But the first cause is always God. And so David pleads that very theology. For thy name's sake, thou will lead me and guide me. And you will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. It's David's way of saying, even when I get trapped in things I didn't see coming. Sure, I'll tell this story. Why not? I was in my 50s when I first learned to think. And when I say that, people kind of chuckle at it. But what I mean by it is, up until my 50s, I was always reacting. Life was happening to me, and then I would try to find the most appropriate reaction. It wasn't until my 50s that I figured out how to just stop, slow down, and think about what I was about to do and ask myself whether what I was about to do made sense. I wasn't just reacting. There were a couple of moments where I felt like I actually got out a little bit ahead of things before they happened. Well, that seems to be also what David is saying here. There are going to be things in this lifetime, secret traps, things you didn't see coming, things that are going to cause you to stumble, things that are going to wrap you up. And your deliverance from those things is never going to be yourself. The cure for you is not you. That it is God himself in his omniscience who knows those traps exist. And when you fall into those traps, he's the one that will deliver you. So David says that it is God who for his own sake guides him and leads him and pulls him out of the nets and out of the traps that were secretly laid for him. And you are my strength. The only reason I get up in the morning, the only reason I know my own name, the only reason that David could say that he was victorious in battle is all because of God. He gives God all the credit for everything in his life, the way he walks, the pitfalls he fell in and then was delivered from, and the strength to continue on, God gets all the credit for all of that. That collectively, those first four verses, are why David then declares, into your hand I commit my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Michael, look up Luke 23, 46 for us, because those are among the very last words that Jesus spoke on the cross. Now, we have to assume that when Jesus was on the cross, that everything he said at that moment was well thought out, well pre-planned. He was not speaking foolishly or haphazardly at that moment. He was saying specific things that people would hear that would remind them of their own scripture 
so that they would go back and look at those scriptures and realize that he was satisfying all these prophecies that had been laid out in advance. Read Luke 23, 46, if you would, Micah. And Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. He said this, and he breathed his last. Okay, now he knows this is the end. This is the last. Why would those be the words that he chose? Into your hand I commit my spirit. First off, it is true that Jesus was trusting God with his own spirit. I have oftentimes pointed to that as the ultimate example of faith. He has just said, why have you forsaken me? You know, God, why are you turning your back on me? He's suffering so badly. And yet, at the point of his own death, he says, I commit my spirit to you. I still trust you. I still have faith in you despite these circumstances. That is one of the ultimate examples of faith you find anywhere in the Bible. But I also think that he quoted that particular thing because of what else David said. He only quoted the first half of what we know as this verse. But David continues the thought. David, knowing full well that God was his deliverer, his stronghold, God was going to save him, his rock and his fortress. God was going to lead him and guide him. God was going to pull him out of secret pits that were hidden for him. God was his strength. And therefore, David would say, into your hand, regardless of what happens, regardless of my life, I commit my spirit to you. I trust you. Why? Because you have ransomed me, O Yahweh, God of truth. David thinking forward prophetically, said the very thing that Jesus quoted and then said that he trusted God because God redeemed him and ransomed him. And that's one of the primary things Jesus was doing on the cross was paying the ransom price for his people. He was paying the redemption for his people and David foreshadowed it in this psalm. I think that's why Jesus quoted it. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. By the way, a minute ago, this is why I started with the middle of, of the psalm. A minute ago we heard David decrying the fact that he knew his own trespasses. He knew his own rebellion against God. Certainly he was punished several times for his sins against God. And he sees, he understands that the solution cannot be him. The solution is God himself has to ransom him, has to buy him off the slave market of sin, has to pay the sufficient price to pay for all David's sinfulness. Otherwise, David is without hope. God in his righteousness has to pay a sufficient price. That's what that word ransom means has to pay that price in order to buy his people back. David foreshadows that, and when Jesus died, I think he was quoting that verse to say, this is it, this is, you're looking at it right now. The ransom price is being paid. I'm shedding my own blood right now and giving my own life for your sake. I am purchasing all the people that God has given to me. I am the ransom. 
So it's such an interesting connection between David predicting it, then Jesus quoting it at the moment that Jesus was doing it. I just find that fascinating. I have said many, many times that if I didn't worship the God of this Bible, I'd have to worship the men who figured out how to write it. Because those kind of connections are just mind-bogglingly perfect. Verse 6. This is the beginning now of David describing himself and his own situation. And that he's completely on God's side. I hate those who regard empty idols. But I trust in the Lord. So there's the contrast. I hate the people who regard idols because, as David has said several times, as the whole Bible says several times, idols are nothing in the best case scenario. They're just a hunk of wood or a chunk of metal in the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, they're demons that are being worshipped. But they're never equatable with Yahweh himself. So David draws that distinction and says, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in Yahweh. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness. One of the things that I love about Christianity and that I thank God for continually, I try to always include it in my private prayers to him. I'm so grateful that he gave us hope. I'm so grateful that he didn't just leave us to ourselves, especially if we had the smallest glimpse of his holiness compared to our depravity. We would just be hopeless. We would just be destitute. I think it's why the God-hating non-Christian people of the world spend so much of their time occupying their minds with absolutely anything else so that they don't have to think about God and they don't have to think about death. So they think about politics, they think about money, and they think about amusement, and they think about you know, anything they can satiate their flesh with, food or sex or whatever, anything they can fill their head with so that they don't have to think about the reality that God is real and judgment is coming. And here David says that his source of rejoicing, even knowing his own sinfulness, knowing his own trespasses against God, knowing how often he himself has been the cause of punishment to Israel collectively because of his own arrogance, the thing that he takes joy in is the knowledge of the loving kindness of God. And boy, that'll give you hope. That'll give you a reason to get up tomorrow. You know, I think we collectively could all say, there's not a genuinely righteous, holy person in the room. Are we pretty much agreed on that one? So then what hope do we have collectively? The only hope we can have is in the loving kindness of God, the loving kindness that did send his son, the loving kindness that did pay a ransom the loving kindness that didn't turn away from us even when we were at our worst. It's the same hope that David had because that's the only hope that has ever existed in the history of humankind. The only hope you have is that God, the eternal judge, is going to be gracious to you. And his loving kindness 
is the motivation for his grace to you. And so David finds comfort in that, even in his knowledge of his wearing out body and his depravity and his enemies and his failures. His hope is in God. I will rejoice and be glad in thy loving kindness because you have seen my affliction and you have known the troubles of my soul and you have not given me over into the hand of my enemy. Thou hast set my feet in a large place. Same idea as rock. You've sent me in an open space where I'm not being attacked or you've set me on a rock where I'm secure and unmoved. And notice that all the failures in life, David takes personal credit for. We're going to read again this list where he talks about all the things that have happened to him, all the hardships, the difficulty, his own trespasses. He takes complete responsibility for his failures. But everything good, all his security, all his hope, the very fact that he's on a rock or in a field, the fact that he's able to live with any level of hope in the future, he accredits God for all of that. And that, by the way, would be a good example for all of us, I think. Thou hast not given me over into the hand of my enemy, and thou hast set my feet in a large place. Be gracious to me. And why is God going to be gracious? Because of his loving kindness. So look at me in your loving kindness. Judge me in your loving kindness. I'll rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness. And be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am in distress. And that takes us to what we've already read. My eye is wasted away from grief. My soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow. And my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my body has wasted away. And because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I have heard the slander of many, terror on every side, while they took counsel together against me. They schemed to take away my life. But as for me, I trust you, O Yahweh. And I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies. And from those who persecute me. And then he does something again really fascinating. He reaches backwards to the blessing that God gave to Moses to give to Aaron to bless the children of Israel. The very blessing that hangs on a plaque by our door there. As you're walking out that door, you read this blessing. The blessing is found in number six. I memorized it years and years ago because in the Lutheran church, every service closed with the minister saying this while making the sign of the crossovers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
Here David takes that phrase, make your face to shine upon me. I think he's going back because he would know that original blessing that was given by God to Moses, to Aaron, to bless the children of Israel. He would know that blessing and he takes that portion of the blessing, make your face shine upon your servant and save me. And what's the motivation? Save me in your loving kindness. Not save me because I earned it. Not save me because I deserve it. But save me because of your loving kindness. And make your face shine upon me. I think that phrase, since it is combined with lifting up the countenance of God on you, I think that's all part of the revelation of God. That is God revealing himself to people. The phraseology, make your face shine upon me, means show me yourself. Reveal yourself to me. Let me have some idea who you are and what you're about. And that's why it was part of the blessing to the children of Israel. That the Lord would bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And in the context of loving kindness and grace, David picked up that phrase. Make your face to shine upon your servant. So what is the solution to the heartache, the pain, the crying, the enemies, the sinfulness of David? What's the solution? Yet again, we find consistent throughout the whole Bible, the solution is not found anywhere else but the grace and loving kindness of God. In the revelation of God, in God teaching us about himself, in God revealing himself to his people, that's the only place where anybody's going to find any hope, any grace, any ransom, any redemption. It's only going to happen through the grace of God, through the kindness of God. And it's only going to happen by the will of God. And our lives down here are very much like what David's been describing. Hardship and difficulty and sorrow and tears. And yet, the answer is, I'll trust you. But as for me, I trust in you. And I will say, you are my God. The definition that I have used for so many years now, the definition of faith, is standing on the word of God and counting it as more true than your circumstances. Because the circumstances of life run contrary to the way human beings think life ought to go. People by their ego think that life ought to go easy. It ought to be fine. And if you carry that philosophy into your Christianity, then you come up with what we were talking about last night, a men's group. The idea that come and be a Christian and life will get better for you and you'll run faster and jump higher and your kids will be better looking and you get a new Cadillac and everything will go good for you if you'll just come to Christ. David is the man after God's own heart and he described how hard life is. And we, God's people on the planet at this moment, we who believe in Christ, we who make the declaration, you are my God. We also have difficult lives, but our faith in God is that we stand on his word and count it as more true than the circumstances of life. The circumstances of life don't change. Our mind changes. Our outlook changes. 
our consideration of what life is about and what's important in life, that's what changes. And it only changes if God changes your heart and changes your attitude. If he makes his face shine on you, if he's gracious to you, then you'll come to the point where you can bear up under the difficulties of this life because you know he's your God. As for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times, my entire life, my times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face to shine upon your servant and save me in your loving kindness. And then again, just like he began with, don't let me be put to shame. He repeats it in verse 17. Let me not be put to shame, O Yahweh, because I call upon you and let the wicked be put to shame and let them be silent in Sheol. In other words, let them go to the grave without any other words because they didn't trust you because they are wicked. But let the people who trust you, who call on you, let them never be put to shame. Verse 18, let the lying lips be dumb. That doesn't mean holy do 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 kind of dumb. That means can't speak. Shut them up. This is David asking God. Let them go to the grave. Let them be silent. Let their lying lips stop talking because they speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. Anybody been on the internet lately? <laughs> that happens all day, every day. The unrighteous, the enemies of God not only express their hatred for God, but they express their hatred for the people of God, and they usually do it with their lying lips and make up things that are completely untrue about us so that they can speak against us, and they speak arrogantly against the righteous, and they do it through their pride and through their contempt. Once again, pride, the most often cited sin in the Bible and the pride and the arrogance of the God-haters causes them to mock the righteous. Those who follow after God, verse 19, how great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which thou hast wrought for those who take refuge in you. We don't know. Anybody here want to take a quick shot at what heaven's going to be like? Want to describe it? When Jesus was here on the planet, he talked about heaven like it was his living room. He knew it like he knew the back of his hand. He was able to describe heaven. No other human can do it. Anybody want to take a shot at describing what heaven's really going to be like? What David knows for sure is that there is this great bounty of goodness that is emanating from God and being stored up for us and once we are delivered into his presence, all of that goodness is going to be ours. We are going to participate in the eternal glory and goodness of God because he created it. He built it for those who take refuge in him. And of course, David started out by saying, you're my refuge. You're my fortress. You're my rock. I trust you, O Lord. So there's a whole lot more to this whole Christian thing, there's a whole lot more to this whole God thing than just what you can get out of it in this lifetime. 
I'm perfectly willing to trade in running faster, jumping higher, having better children, getting a Cadillac, bigger home. Perfectly willing to trade in my best life now if I get to be part of the eternal glory, eternal happiness, and the eternal blessings of God that even right now as I'm talking are being stored up by God for all those people who trust him. That's a much better deal. Much better trade. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which thou hast wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. Notice that the righteous take refuge in God before the sons of men. That's why the sons of men, the unrighteous, the God-haters, that's why they lie on us. That's why they talk bad about us, because we live out our faith. We are demonstrably Christian. We are demonstrably God's people. We're different than the people of this world, and they're willing to mock us for that. But if you live that God-fearing life before men, then you get to take part in that great goodness. You do hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of men. Okay, now David is beginning this general talk. Now he's talking about all the believers in God. He's encouraging people to trust God regardless of their circumstances. Because God is going to take all those who trust in him, who walk out their lives before the sons of men in a trust, in a demonstrable fashion. Those people, says verse 20, God is going to hide them in the secret place of his presence and hide them away from the conspiracies of men. And you do keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of the tongues and the lips and the talk of men. Verse 21, after all that, he breaks into a eulogy, blessed is Yahweh. For he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. Notice David says, again, my circumstances didn't change. I'm still in the city. My enemies are still active. I'm still under siege. But I trust God and blessed speak well of Yahweh because he has made marvelous to me his loving kindness. Earlier I said, were it not for God, were it not for Christ, we'd have no hope. And when I said that, everybody nodded their head at me. Because everybody in this room knows that the loving kindness, the grace, and the hope of God is truly marvelous. But how do we know it's marvelous? How did we reach the point where we think it's marvelous? How did we come to the knowledge that God is marvelous? He did it. God revealed himself to us. So blessed is the Lord because he made marvelous his loving kindness to me in my besieged city, despite my circumstances. Despite what I'm going through, I can look to God and find confidence. He's my rock. Verse 22, as for me, I said when I was alarmed, back when things were difficult, as for me, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from before thine eyes. And nevertheless, you did hear the voice of my supplication when I cried to you. There's a theological reality there. Even when you're going through the real difficulties of life where you think, where's God in this? This is really hard for me. I must be cut off from God now. 
David says, despite the moments when he reached such fleshly weakness that he would say in his alarm, in his fear, in his moments of terror, he would think, I'm cut off from before your eyes. But nevertheless, even when I was faithless, you still heard my voice, listened to my supplications. When I cried to you, you still heard me. When I cried to you, you still answered me. That's the faithfulness of God. Despite our failures, despite our weakness, despite our incapabilities. And aren't you really, really happy that that's the kind of God we have? Yes. I mean, wouldn't it be a shame if God reacted to you based on you? What if God, yeah, ooh, yeah, just kind of an ugly picture, isn't it? No, God does everything, again, inspired by himself, through his own loving kindness, through his revelation of himself, through his own consistency. And that's why we have hope. That's why we have confidence in him. Because he hears our voice and he listens to our supplications when we cry to him, even when we are at our worst, even when we are faithless. All it takes is turning to him and he hears us. Verse 23, again, here's his declaration to the congregation of Israel. Oh, love the Lord, all you godly ones, all you saints, all you righteous ones. Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and he fully recompenses the proud. There's God's answer to the proud. I keep saying that pride is the essence of what human sinful ego is all about. And David and really everybody in the Bible keeps saying God will recompense. God will judge. And pride is the primary thing that he's going to bring down. God gives grace to the humble. He's going to take down the proud. And so knowing that God is going to recompense, knowing that judgment is coming, knowing that God is sovereign and fair, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. So be strong and let your heart take courage, all of you who hope in the Lord. He ended up again at hope. And where do we get that hope? Where do we get that faith? Because of the loving kindness of God who does everything according to his own will, who decided to choose some people, shine his face on those people, reveal himself to those people, and without changing any of the circumstances of the lives of those people, he gives them the confidence and the hope to get through this life. I don't know how people who don't know God, I don't know how they deal with this present evil age. I don't know how they deal with this increasingly stupid world. I'm sure that's why there's an epidemic of drugs and alcohol and everything else, because people are trying so hard to suppress the reality that God is out there and that they're headed for judgment. But we who know God, we who can be referred to as the saints of God, we, the happy recipients of God's revelation of himself, 
We get to walk in the knowledge of God. And that walk in the knowledge of God produces hope, a kind of hope that just, Paul says, it, it's beyond understanding. We get this peace. We get this confidence in this lifetime that God gives us despite the circumstances. So I'll wrap up by saying this. If your faith in God is based on your hope or your belief that when you come to God, he'll change your circumstances and make your circumstances better, you don't understand what the Bible says. What the Bible says is the circumstances might be bad and might continue to be bad, and this life is difficult, but you'll find hope because of the loving kindness and grace of God despite your circumstances. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's what David preached. That's what Paul preached. I've said it many, many times. And yet I'm going to say it again, and you can't stop me. (laughs) It seems like if the wealth, health, prosperity, change of circumstance, if that's what the gospel actually was, you would think at least one of the apostles would have done it. At least one. But no, their circumstances didn't change. In fact, their circumstances got worse after they came to Christ. We shouldn't expect any different. But what we can love God for is that in the midst of this terror, in the midst of this world, in the midst of our own difficulty and our own bodies wearing out, despite our own knowledge of our own sinfulness and the many times that we've rebelled against God, we can hope in God because of his unchanging nature and his loving kindness and grace toward us. And there's no better news than that. Questions? Comments? I heard one guy say one time that drugs and alcohol are for people that can't handle reality. And reality is the fact that God exists and his son's coming back. Absolutely. And life in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a tough reality for some people. Mm-hmm. For us, like Paul said, we love his appearing. We're anxious for Christ to come back. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of people that are afraid that Christ is going to come back. <laughs> They're going to run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth, all the stuff we've been reading on Sundays. All right, I got to let you go. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.